Today is going to be a reflection on the topic of reinterpreting honor. Um, somebody told me after last service they'd never heard a message on honor. And what's interesting is the number of passages in the Bible that have honor as a central theme, uh, I'm sure, are more than 20. And so uh, what this is reflecting is that honor and shame in the Middle East and certain countries elsewhere is mu are much more central themes. And so I'm trying to bring a, a set of glasses to the passages three passages to represent the many and give, uh, hopefully, all of us new eyes to see what God would have us to pick up from parts of the Bible that we hadn't yet seen because of culture we come from. These are pictures of weddings and the kind of honor, even for a poor person, that is around a ceremonial events. They're, they're high formality in, in terms of speaking. I always have to wear a tie and, you know, everything is very formal and uh, regimented. So certain uh, social settings have to have certain uh, flag markers to show honored people and status. And so things are hierarchically sta uh, stacked. Even in the Javanese language, uh, you have to determine who's older. Even if it's a three, three days older, you have to change your language to, to talk up to the person that's older and higher status. And so these are the kinds of, of uh, it's complicated, uh, kind of dimensions that we live in. And I think, I hope to bring some passages more clear. Eleven or more years ago, a man was in prison named Liu Qiobo, a Chinese dissident who was um, criticizing the government for how they handled the massacre in Tiananmen Square. And uh, he was imprisoned and, in a sense, shamed, bodily shamed, for his uh, value. And so the value of his value was uh, decreased. And uh, his voice became small in terms of uh, influencing his culture intentionally by the government. A little over a year ago, the Swedish uh, group of people that controlled the Nobel Peace Prize uh, picked Liu Chiobo, though he was in prison, to receive the Nobel Peace Prize in a sense a little tiny country in Sweden against the voice and the opinion of a very large Chinese nation putting onto the human world court what was honorable and what was valuable. I thought it was a an interesting political influence in the world um, for values that were behind those, those uh, symbols of honor. In Indonesia, we have honor and shame skirmishes uh, continuously. As one example, we were there just a couple of months when we had a big skirmish outside of our, uh, just in our very near neighborhood, and, and a, a woman had been sharing and, and had a little tiny window up high, and some youth had gotten up and, and had looked in, and, and she came out dishonored and with a machete, and she was going to settle her honor by killing this guy, and people were holding her back, and, and then uh, he got uh, dishonored by her, her uh, front to his honor and shaming him in public, and so we almost had uh, standard kin on two sides getting into a rousing free-for-all, and then I was told I shouldn't be there because I was shaming them by being there, and it was, you know, these kinds of processes are happening in which the, the, the sense of honor is limited. So if one person or two are lifted, then the likelihood of others being exalted diminishes. And same with wealth. So if one person gets wealthy, which is in their view a, a symbol of, of honor, then he should or she should disguise that and they hide it away in different ways so that there's not going to be the, the pressure of the social group to pressure that person and, and to distribute their wealth and even things out, even out the honor.
And so uh, in this context, then, we're working on our ministry and how do we bring change and influence into a, something that's locked down by a cultural uh, quality that, that keeps things in place and, and, and basically argues for no change in the culture when we want to see change when we're with the Lord. In the Arab world, in North Africa, this last January, and they called it the Arab Spring or the Arab Awakening, if you've been watching world news, people, young people and, and people were uh, feeling pressured and held down by these despotic rulers and they, they wanted something different. And I think they had been wanting something different for many years or decades. But what happened, I think, was the, uh, with the introduction of Facebook and Twitter, these opinions got uh, moved around the world fast. They began to create an alternate court of honor, such that if people went out in the streets and did certain kinds of things that eventually brought the downfall of certain governments and major social changes, then those people were, uh, be became pockets of resistance, that they were going in a cross direction to, to the government control. And they became renewal movements throughout these countries. Some are, uh, untold, uh, the last chapters are certainly untold. But uh, I, in my own uh, question would be, was the Nobel Peace Prize of the dissidents uh, bringing freedom and more openness in government uh, are to be honored, was that a part of this world story that then went out through Facebook and, and Twitter, uh, which I can't answer. But, and, and I began to think about what is my role in bringing about a redefined sense of honor that more aligns with how the Bible looks at it. Now, before we uh, sort of think this story is all about other countries but not ours, to keep in mind that here in uh, 1 Peter, you, uh, meaning all of us as well, were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. So no matter whether in my case, Swedish, Norwegian, American, uh, whatever your background is, we have had things and traditions and ways of viewing things and values handed down to us that uh, the Bible says we have to be redeemed from. There's good parts of that, and there's parts that are kind of corrupted and need to be uh, realigned with heaven's court of honor. And so that's what we're about, not just about a story overseas, but how, how it um, affects the way we think of sort of uh, a world that uh, when we're back and forth between two nations, mostly living overseas, we tend to start to see things about the cultures that, in this case, what we honor and what we put forward colors the things we pursue and count most valuable. And in this process, Jesus became a, a renewal agent. I don't know if you've thought of him that way. He's more than that. But uh, he didn't establish Christianity. That didn't occur until 300 years after his death. But he established a renewal sect within Judaism that he would say, you've heard it said, do not kill. But I say to you, don't be angry with your brother. And so there was a renewal sense of, of saying you've got to go down deeper into the heart levels and in the unseen levels of things to get to true religion. So he mainly focused on the 12. He also talked to crowds, but we didn't necessarily see churches when he, uh, when he graduated, when he, when he uh, uh, was resurrected. And yet, uh, 10 years later, there were 10,000 believers. So I have to ask the question, what did he do to create a foundation for a, a fast-moving renewal movement that was thriving and multiplying and I think one of the things he most frequently did was speak on the topic of honor and shame. And he did it with phrases like, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be servant of all. And there were, I think, six or seven sermons of different locations and different illustrations where this main theme was put across. I think his most frequent sermon. 
And so I think it's fitting for us to think about heaven's court of honor. Some people ask me my role in Indonesia, and I say, well, my job is to find first dominoes. Uh, what, that, what I'm trying to symbolize is that there's a first in a tipping process of cascading people who are bowing the knee to Jesus. And they're, in a, they're tightly connected in Indonesia to another set of people relationally. Who's the first domino? How do we break into a culture? And how do I find people that can recognize first dominoes is kind of the type of thinking that God asked me to think through. How do, in this case, the biggest circle would be like Paul, and the yellows would be like people like Timothy, the first generation. And then uh, in 2 Timothy 2, 2, he's to find <coughs> faithful men. That would be the red circles of small believer groups. And then the next was who are able to teach others also would be then the greens. And so to think of ourselves as grand... I watched a grandfather uh, last service that had a ham-boned grandson on the stage. It was so much fun to watch, watch the two interacting. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good for us to think in terms of uh, the grandchildren or great-grandchildren, multidimensional, so that the DNA strands we put into our relationships have a, have a, a thought to where they're going to go. Where is this going to go in the future? I think we're on the screen, whose opinion matters. And so we ask that question, whose opinion really matters? And so before we read the scriptures, are you and I part of a renewal band? That we don't just go with the flow, but that we're actually some, in some ways a minority. Whatever, wherever we work, wherever we go to school or live, and are we pursuing honor in ways that create, with those that are linking hands with us, a pocket of resistance, redeeming shame and pursuing honor the Jesus way. So it's such that it really brings change to us and to us individually and collectively. And are we promoting that in small, authentic communities? Now, when I began on this thinking about a year ago um, and doing some reflection, uh, this is an example of some of the key people that worked with us. We were gathering and giving honor to two people that had served for 25 years and the qualities of their lives. And all oh, the women were crying. And is that one of the ladies? I've never had anything so meaningful in my entire life. And somebody else. And I could tell it wasn't just the pride for the one individual, but it was the collective values of the group together that were bonding with this symbolic means and were pursuing what really matters. And so while we're pursuing it, is it sending out runners like these strawberry plants, creating new plants that are new fruit-producing areas, um, because God says we should go and bear fruit. Okay, so here is one of three passages we're going to read and reflect on. This one is Jesus is training a group of low-status, mostly low-status people, 12. And there are high-status people who are in the religious context called the leaders or the Pharisees. And he is, at this point, shaming them in order to provide a lesson for his disciples about what true leadership and influence is going to be about. And so he's, he's countering a cultural theme, and he's not completely countering it, but he's reinterpreting it. Everything they do, these Pharisaical leaders, is done with a motive for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. That's little boxes that they put verses in to indicate, in this case, that I'm a religious person. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a significant person. And then the tassels are also religious markers. And they love the place of honor at banquets. So we have those things all the time at, in Indonesia. And it's where you get seated, in, in the front seats or the 
most honored, and you want to be careful not to take seats that are too high for you, and, and to be moved up is much better than to be moved back. It's very common. And they take the most important seats in the synagogues, and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces, and to have men call them, Rabbi, I respect you. <laughs> and then he says emphatically, but you. And so here's a countercultural message, are not to be called Rabbi. For you have only one master. So the <clears throat> exalting of humans is contradicting heaven's principle of making God high and everyone else low. There's, there's a oneness to that, to that esteem. There's a loyalty focused on one. And for you have only, notice the use of the word, one master. And then you are all brothers. There's an equality there. There's a consideration and honor and, and a bonding. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have only one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. So it's, it's to shake up this thing and uh, put Christ up and God, God up as one central. The greatest among you will be your servant. This is master's master principle. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So here's the type of person that we encounter as religious leaders in our context. They're all the markers of uh, power. I was brought into a room, no chairs, um, a beautiful uh, carpet, no, not one stick of furniture. Uh, the top man was seated right in the middle of the room, like on a throne, but it was cross-legged in the Indonesian culture. And then I was, I was put on the end of a line of people like we were kindergartners on the wall. <laughs> and there, everything was uh, locationally set up to indicate you know, up and down. And uh, in this kind of culture, Jesus is saying men pursue false honor. It's false because from, uh, where, they're, from where they're seeking it. And it's, it's, it's a human court of honor. It's the opinions, it's people pleasing that makes it false. And then it also, false honor makes relationships shallow. It, it has us interacting at a, at a more surface level because it's not safe to go deeper. If we go deeper, we might reveal some of our uh, rawness, some of our shakiness. And uh, some of the places we need God and we need other people. And we're in, we can't really go it alone, but we have to be not dependent, but interdependent in a healthy manner. So as we do that, now um, it, it builds a community that we're all brothers, sisters. So we pursue, uh, pray, the wrong way to do it is pursue praise from humans and put focus on the status in that human court. And then we build the hierarchy uh, instead of the, the sense of family. That, that I, can, I can receive you just as you are. And, and we can together reflect and see how God will come and bring uh, some, some uh, redemption there into that rawness. And so Jesus reinterpreted true, true honor in which uh, one aspect was the loyalty to the one. So there are a lot of these songs this morning were getting our heart directed in, in a new way to seeing you know, we haven't been hearing that message all week long, but to put God up there on the throne, and he, he's, he's, well, boom, he's, he's a big majestic one on the top, and we're all brothers. 
So this young lady was telling me last night, I got a kick out of it, how she just didn't know if she really was meeting any real men and she couldn't find the right guy. And I just got a kick out of that. And I felt like I was able to be her uncle, you know, in this, in this kind of social setting I was in. And you kind of commiserate with her and, and help her understand her, her heart and why was that so hard to find someone. It's achieved by serving and uh, by humbling. And so it's not achieved by grasping and uh, that's who I am kind of statements. But it's achieved by looking for the needs in others as God's representative and, and, and giving life, giving enlivenment and, and th- helping people thrive and come out like flowers. I just love it when people, are, I see there's some beauty there somehow in that person. And what can we do to help them begin to blossom and show their beauty without fear? And so in this setting, uh, some of the Indonesians I work with, uh, one of these men is uh, very um, humble and has 140 believer groups uh, with, between him and, and the, his volunteers and spread out over large, number, wide geographic areas. And, uh, and he's a, a strong bonding agent. Another one is a bit problematic. He really wants to have affirmations. He seeks those. And it really is hard. Everybody has to work around him and figure out how they're going to not upset him but not get derailed by him. And, and just the bonding that happens with service and the building of, communi- of a thriving community. So whose voice really matters? Is it the people's voice that guides or the voice of God? And this is not easy. I remember um, last fall when I was being uh, heavily criticized over uh, an issue uh, that was quite emotional. And um, just barbs, you know, coming. Luckily, I got out of there before I opened my mouth and went home and uh, just was really wounded, deeply wounded. And uh, I said, Melody, you got to pray for me. I'm dying. <laughs> this one really hurt me hard. <laughs> they keep telling me I have to be thick-skinned if I'm going to be a leader, but I haven't figured out how to do it yet. <laughs> I just keep having the, those, those hurts. And, and as she prayed, um, it was a lifting just a, just a magnificent personal touch from God that he really reminded me of his majesty, of his opinion of me, of his, his coming. And uh, sort of the other things kind of faded in which he becomes, in that instance, a voice whose opinion matters. Let God be the head of your court of honor. So here we get to Mark 7. And another passage where, not, it's actually not Mark, but Luke 7, and uh, it's another passage where um, what we're dealing with here is a, a men's meeting and a meal. And the women are back in back, probably, and, which is how it would be in our country. And into this scene breaks in a woman, and a very unusual woman, a woman of dishonor. And what's Jesus going to do with this? Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the meal. Then when a woman of that town who was a sinner, meaning she has a long-standing reputation, you know, it's a loose woman, maybe, I don't know what the right term is. This is a woman uh, of that character and uh, learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. This is an expensive, uh, you know, it's like a bank account. This, this oil. And as she stood behind him at his feet, meaning, why behind? Because 
They had the low tables in that culture, no chairs. You, had, you sat on, on the left side there, and uh, your elbow was up on the, you know, kind of holding your weight on the side, and you had that right hand free to eat, probably with the hands, without silverware. And the feet were tucked in, so the only way into the room was on the perimeter around the outside, and there were the feet, see? So she had come in, and she had stood uh, behind Jesus, right over his feet, okay? And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfumed oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so this is a thought in his heart, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. That she is, uh, she is a woman of, of uh, poor reputation. Let's just put that in there. That's the thrust of the passage. And, uh, and so we have it. Uh, how is it the woman came in? You know, I, th- I think that Jesus had been speaking in the area. She'd seen him. She'd estimated his character. Somehow there was a look. It was a, a kindness, but with a boldness somehow to him. Uh, something of safety. And I just need Jesus for the problem that ails me without really defining maybe how Jesus was going to be the answer. So she wanted more time. And she came in, and, but she was pressed by the eyesight of all the men, like, what are you doing in here? You know, kind of feelings that were coming at her. And, and she was aware of her inner shame and had been illuminated by the, the pressure that she was feeling. But yet, this was somehow going to be her answer. And so it just squeezed out those tears not just a little bit of tears, but what I call crocodile tears, piles of them, enough to make those dusty feet of Jesus uh, turn muddy. And then she had a new problem. Oh, I've, I've messed up. You know, I've, I've made it worse. I've got muddiness on his feet. Where's the towel? And there was no towel around. So what do I have? You know, and, and so the feet in one of these cultures is the most dishonorable part of the body. Okay, like we can't point our feet at anyone cross-legged. That's just an insult in our culture. And so uh, the head is the, you can't touch a head. The head is the honorable part. And for a woman, her hair, the most honorable of the most honorable. And there, there's, there's this woman going, oh, I got my hair. And so she gets her head down to the feet. And she then brings her honor and, and helps to take away the dishonor, the dirtiness on the feet and gave him that expensive oil on top. And so there we have it, and it's a shameless woman who's overwhelmed by her, I mean a shamed woman who's overwhelmed by her shame. And she's, she's doing it wholeheartedly. She's giving it all, though maybe not you know, carefully crafted, but there she is, it's, it's coming out in rawness. And then she's being shamed, uh, in thought at least, by the religious leaders. And so there we pick up the rest of the story. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A certain creditor had two debtors. So he's dealing with a delicate situation, so he's telling a story. One owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. Quite a difference in debt. When When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? 
I've asked many a taxi driver in Indonesia. They all answer the same way. Well, the one who had the biggest debt uh, forgiven. You know, everybody could picture that. And so Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. That's a shaming. That's a public shaming in their culture. Because he didn't do the normally hospitable thing. And so he wanted him to be a teacher, but he didn't really want to honor him as a teacher. And this woman, in contrast, has wet my feet with her costly tears. The part that cost her inner life to, to give those tears and wipe them with her honorable hair. You didn't even use your rag. Um, you gave me no kiss of greeting. That's a man-to-man greeting, as is common. But from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet, my dishonorable parts. You did not anoint my head with oil, common oil, but she has anointed my feet with specially valuable oil. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. I don't think they were forgiven because she did these things. I think these things are the signal or the sign that there had been an inner transformation in her life. Thus she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, the one that doesn't know how much they need to be forgiven and has never unloaded it on God, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now they they go on to say, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, what they're wrestling with here is they thought only God forgave sins, but Jesus forgave sins. And so they're, they're running towards the conflict, is it two gods? And they're going to realize, no, there's a divine identity. There's a sharing in forgiveness, but that's a, a subtopic. So here, Christ lifts the shame. He reverses the false shame and gives instead. He reverses the false honor and, and, re, and puts it on to the woman. Here's the honorable person, the woman. So great debt is canceled. And it's there's love. It builds a love capacity. You know, I don't know, have you, have you ever had times in your life where you feel like, hey, they're beating up my heart, or life circumstances, I'm just getting pounded. But I think we have to go through those to enlarge, have an enlarged heart for loving. Um, so the shame is lifted by what I call the Jesus look, the release. And we have shame, which brings repentance, Forgiveness, faith comes, and then capacity, shameless love. And it's a reversal of the incorrect evaluation of the human court of reputation. We often talk in churches uh, about the sin that's been forgiven, but do we talk about the stain that's been lifted? You know, these, these stain removers are really amazing on clothes, but what about the stain of shame? I think some of us live all our lives thinking what happened to us when we were 11 years old. Still with us. But there's a stain removal that is miraculous when we're with Jesus. Not only that, we belong. We're not outsiders looking in. We're, we're in the inside ring a family, Jesus' family. And then our honor is not only is our shame lifted, but our honor is proclaimed in the world court. 
Now here I'm picking up with a different passage where the disciples were starting to get it. They were starting to get that they should move their court of honor from humans to God's court of honor, where God has had the angels uh, say amen to the things that matter to him, where he says, rejoice with me. Remember Luke 15? And we begin to take on eyes to see things more as God does. But they wanted the top two spots in the end times. They wanted the spots at the right and the left of the, of the throne, the most glorious place. And they wanted them and didn't want the other ten to have them. So there's still a problem here. And uh, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, well, let one of us sit at the right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus says, can you drink the cup I drink? Meaning, there is a suffering pathway. The cup is the, the symbol of his suffering, the blood that was shed. And there's more to this, but he's saying there's, there, you, have to, you have to gain the opportunity to have the very top spots. But I want to go down to verse 41 in the green. When the ten heard about this, the other ten disciples, they became indignant. Why? Because if two are up, ten are not up. <laughs> there's a competitiveness there. See? They're sensing that there's a limited amount of glory, of honor. And uh, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together, saw a teaching opportunity, said... You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They take the up spots, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And then this should have been read, not so with you. It's emphatic. It's a countercultural thing we're doing here. Instead, whoever wants to become great, and that's good, to want to become great from heaven's point of view, but there's a different pathway. You must become servants. And whoever wants to be first must become uh, slaves. For even, so even the Son of Man, and he's speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and that is to go so far as to give his life as a ransom for many. So he gave it all. He gave it all. That's something for which we're thankful, but it's also in this verse a model. He's, he's setting the pathway for us to follow. That the way we build community of honor is we do it through giving. Especially those that hurt us. We've got to give more. We've got to kill them with kindness. We've got to give them the kindness of God. And that's a glue agent, a gluing agent that bonds and builds value and, and allows the communities to thrive, to multiply, to bear fruit. Competition it destroys over agendas is what destroys fruit. But in heaven's court of honor, it's not now, but it's at Jesus' return when it will become visible. And it's not through ease, but it's through sometimes suffering. And uh, one of the things I, I keep praying for myself when something hard comes uh, is so that I can receive it, not, not fight against it, but receive the value of that. I really had a lesson once. I was a wrestler previously and a wrestling coach and uh, I was already out of competition and I was just kind of, as a hobby, occasionally wrestling. And I went up against, at one tournament I did real well. I thought, man, I'm really getting good. And then the next weekend, 
I went up against the Canadian national champion. I spent the whole, the whole match flying through the air, <laughs> being thrown through the air. And, uh, and then it was, and then next I met, met his sparring partner who was about almost as good. And I just, the whole time I was just, and I just kept saying, well, I'm going to keep, keep wrestling for the Lord, yeah, no matter how many times I get thrown. <laughs> and uh, I think it ended up to be like 23 to 3 or some, you know, big off-balance thing. I really felt like, nobody else knows it, but I felt like I wrestled it for the Lord. And uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and they said, how did you do it? I said, I thought, it wasn't too hard, you know, being thrown through the air, you know. I mean, what, what are we talking about here? And he said, how did you do it? How did you keep coming? I said, I would have expected someone like you, uh, being outmatched, meaning, by the, um, by the Canadian national champion, to just give up. I said, oh, I would just keep wrestling for the Lord. I kept praying the whole time and thinking about the angels that were watching, and I've got to demonstrate, you know, the courage that, that Christ would want to give me. And he says, yeah, that was really amazing. Tell me about it. He wanted to know a testimony about my faith from me getting thrown through the air. Can you imagine? And, and so how do we uh, develop this court of honor in all the things we do so that uh, you know, we set up a change and we're a renewal agent and we begin to build kin of people that long for God's well done, good and faithful servant. The clapping of one. Uh, we moved to Indonesia. Hard to adapt, very hard. My kids... My daughter was eight, a lot of tears. So we set her up with dancing. She couldn't speak much Indonesian. So she had a partner, and I called them the salt and pepper duo because they had quite different skin colors up there on the stage. And at the uh, recital, the Indonesian was very proficient, been doing it a long time, very graceful. My daughter was just trying to get it figured out. <laughs> but uh, you know, most of the people would have been clapping for the, the proficient dancer. But uh, my daughter looked at me, <laughs> and she saw the clapping of one, because one mattered to her. My opinion mattered to her. And so when we are doing something, are we hearing the clapping of our Father as the one that's setting our values and keeping us going in the right direction? So we're invited to follow Jesus to the true awards assembly. As a wrestling coach, what I really loved was to talk about all the individual good qualities of the different wrestlers at the end of the season, to give out different awards. And I'd make up all kinds of awards to, to give out. And it was fun to have an awards assembly. But you know, there's a true awards assembly at the end of time, and Jesus gives the awards. And so he went before us. The verse says, let us fix our eyes, fix our focus on Jesus, the author, the one that opened the pathway and perfected the pathway of our faith, who for the joy set before him, in other words, he went down a tunneling of suffering, of turmoil, of, of, of conflict, but at the end of it, there was joy, there was honor. He endured the cross, he scorned the shame, he shamed the shame. He said, okay, you shame me, but I can shame that shame. It doesn't mean anything. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, the, the symbol of the highest level of exaltation possible. So... The question remains for us as we close. Um, will you long for renewal uh, in your little family unit, in your extended family unit, in your workplace, in your, in your educational site? Will you set up an alternate court of honor such that the comments you make support and align and synchronize with God's view and become and help form pockets of resistance, what I'm calling here renewal bands,
where God has a hold of it and he's bringing change. I know uh, this area, as many, most have been hit hard by the economics. And um, I think we have to welcome those kind of, uh, those kind of blows, uh, that kind of loss of value, uh, kind of changes into our future. I mean, I sat there one year and I said to Melody, well, the bad news is we just lost 40% of our future retirement. But the good news is it wasn't all that much anyway. So <laughs> it just kind of helped me to release it. I had been worrying about it before then. <laughs> but then I thought, well, well, we'll figure out something. You know, the, Lord, the Lord's got something ahead of us. And the main thing is put our eyes on him and make sure the ladder's leaning on the right wall. You know, it's, it's a call, uh, I think, for us to come back to depth, to re- renewal, and to rootedness in God's court of honor. Thanks for your time and, and your reflection. I hope you'll continue to reflect on these things. Let's pray. So there we have it. We spent some time together this morning, Lord, before you. You've drawn our attention to three parts of the Bible. Different listeners have had different experiences. Your spirit has been engaged, and we ask, Lord, that you would bring to the forefront those parts where you yourself were manifesting yourself, expressing yourself, And those little rooms of our heart that are closed or have been closed due to shame, we pray that you would open those doors, that the the light of Jesus Christ, that light, that whiteness that's so more than white on the cross, that you would uh, reach into our hearts and pull out the darkness, the darkness caused by others, the darkness caused by ourselves, that you transfer that darkness onto the whiteness and have it be swallowed up by the whiteness of Christ. We pray that the whiteness of Christ would be taken and be transferred into those formerly dark rooms of our lives. That the whiteness would invade them and color them and penetrate them in ways that were unimaginable. That the life of Christ would be ours. That your light would live through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.